I, I just, I get like, I get frustrated by how many actual status quo decisions are labeled as price or product, right? It's like, because it, it, to say no decision, to your point early, Andy, is like, I failed. And I think when we go in our CRM and we see our closed loss reasons, it's like you hear the customer say, you know, call me back in six months and we'll budget this for next year. And all of a sudden it's price or it's budget. To me, it's not really that, right? It was, we had an inability and I lost these deals. I had an inability to show urgency now. And so I allowed the customer to kick it out and be okay with status quo. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jen Allen. Jen is the Chief Evangelist at Challenger. Now, also joining me on the show today is Howard Brown, founder and CEO of Revenue.io. And in our conversation today, we are talking about the psychology of the dreaded no decision, which is really a misnomer because when the customer sticks with the status quo, well, my friends, that is most definitely a decision and it's not a good one. So we dive into the root causes of the no decision and what you can do as a seller to ensure the buyer makes a buying decision. And before we get into that, Jen also provides an update on Challenger and perhaps a bit of an introduction to the Challenger method to those who think they know what it is, but very possibly don't. So we'll get into all that and much, much more. But before we get to Jen, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. So thank you for your help with that. Let's jump into it with our guests. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am absolutely so excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you here. And Howard Brown is joining us as well. Howard, we're always excited to have you join us too. Always glad to be here. Super psyched to be here with Jen as well. Perfect. All right. So, well, so everybody knows Howard, who's listened to the show before. But uh, Jen, tell us about yourself and what you do. Sure. So I am currently the chief evangelist at Challenger Inc. Lots of people know the Challenger sale or the Challenger customer. Mm -hmm. We're the organization that helps companies implement the model. Um, but I am a bit of a weirdo in the sense that I've been prior to this a lifelong seller. I never wanted to be a sales right. manager, never wanted to be a sales leader, never wanted to wanted to run a sales organization. I truly just love selling. So I've done account management right. positions, a new logo acquisition, big deals, small deals. Um, but that's kind of what got me into the job I'm in today. Well, so how did it? What was that path? Because you said you didn't want to do it. So yeah. what took you there? It was actually in probably March of last year. I started to notice just a massive decrease in inbound lead volume. And mm -hmm. I sat there and my normal tendency is to go bark at marketing and complain and I said, you know, you're kind of putting your destiny in the hands of someone else. So what can mm. Jen do differently to take more ownership over that? So I started getting involved in content, started writing posts, started, you know, getting involved in our own company's podcasts and things like that. And what I found very quickly is it really was the part of the job that I love the most. It's the beginning of the mm. sales process. It's changing someone's mm -hmm. opinion around what they think they need to do. Not to say I don't like the end. Everybody loves the thrill of the win and the paycheck that comes along with it. But I just found myself looking at my sales process and saying, that stuff's cool, but it's really the early part that really got me excited. And so I did it as a side of the desk type thing in my sales job last year. Mm -hmm. And then came November, I approached our CEO and said, would you be completely opposed to formalizing this into a role? And she said, I'm game, let's try it. And so what would the verdict be? 
The verdict is it is 99% awesome. The thing I completely undervalued is the glory of being a seller and just being able to run your own little business, right? There's a mm -hmm. lot more team work. There's a lot more meetings. There's a lot more stuff that I had the glory of not having to get involved in as an individual contributor. But I think mm -hmm. it's making me better, right? Just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not making me better. But it is very different from being an IC. So how do you define the role of an evangelist in, in yeah, an organization is, like that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm talking to a few other evangelists and everybody thinks about it a little bit differently, which is why I think the role is kind of cool. I think it's sort of dependent on what the business problem is that your company needs to solve. So for us, there's a lot of people who know Challenger Sale. Hardly anybody knows that Challenger Inc. exists. The other problem mm -hmm. is there's a lot of people who know the Challenger Sale and absolutely hate it. Like I'm talking, they get on LinkedIn and just go off. And some of it, I, I understand, right? Challenger's not for everybody. But a lot of it, I think there's a large misconception around what Challenger is because it's often left to people's own interpretations by reading the book. And so I kind of look at evangelism for Challenger as I want to embody for me, what I think a challenger is, I want to actually live it, breathe it, not just throw up a bunch of bar charts and talk about teach, tailor, take control, construct attention, but actually bring to life so people can look at it and say, okay, now I get it. And now I can make a decision around whether I like it or not. Right. Well, so let's dive into that a little bit because I think that <laughs> you nailed it. As especially, I think some among the younger generation in sales think they know what it is, but don't really understand, you know, they, everybody sort of conceptualized this idea of a challenge, but so explain people to people, the, the premise. So they understand how the challenger works. Sure. Yeah. I think the first thing that I will say is we did not invent challenger. Like we get yeah. knocked all the time of people saying, I've always sold like this. Of course you did. That's how we were able to discover it. All we did back in 0809 when the economy was going crazy was we went out and we just studied high performing and average performing sellers. And we just looked at, are there observations you can make about how they are approaching their customers that are totally different in kind? And without mm -hmm. going into all the dirty details of Challenger, because I know a lot of people are familiar with it, what we learned is there's basically five different types of mindsets that you can bring to a sale. Now, I absolutely will own that I was a relationship builder. Like I started mm -hmm. off in account management I was taught that if you're likable, accessible, you go the extra mile, you're really friendly, that's what makes customers like you and want to spend time with you. And it worked. It worked really well until 0809. And then all of a sudden, my friends were gone and they were laying off their mm -hmm. teams and there was no more budget. And all of a sudden, that friendship meant nothing. So relationship mm -hmm. builder is one of them. Hard worker is kind of like, you know, I work so hard for the customer. I'm first in, last out, always hit my activity metrics because I have this belief that if I work hard, it, it's going to equal success. And then you mm -hmm. got your lone wolves who we have no idea what the hell they're doing. They never show up to training. They never <laughs> submit their expense reports on time. When they're good, we let them be. Um, and then you got your problem solver, like super common in a, you know, engineering led business where they are reactive to customer problems and they feel good because they're helping the customer, but they're not bringing new insight to that customer. So those are the other four profiles. Long answer. Challengers are kind of like your debaters of the world. Like every time I watched you, Andy, interact with a guest or I watch you write a post, it's like you have a different way of thinking about 
damn near everything in sales. And that's what I think of as a challenger, right? It's like the person who is unafraid to challenge how something has always been done, but they don't do it in a way that is like, I am smarter than you, or I am better than you, and I know something you don't. They do it in a Mm. really constructive way where they're presenting a perspective, they're presenting an insight, and then they're offering for that, that other party to share their observations, correct us around what we've missed, because we can't know everything as a seller. We don't work within that organization. So I view challengers as people who are just like unabashedly afraid of seeking out what might be causing a business more risk, more cost than necessary. Right. Boy, oh boy, Andy, I got to tell you, she just described our daily (laughs) communication, right? (laughs) Like Andy and I have been working together for a few years now, and uh, now I have a definition for what we do. We are challengers. <laughs> yes, challenging. Yes. Uh, well, so I guess a question I had about that is, is <laughs> is, is a challenger sort of sit alongside other sales methodologies? And you know, this is this is like you said a mindset that you bring to it, or because I people sort of think about it as like, well, yeah, I can do spin, I can do challenger, I can do you know, whatever, whatever. But to me, it's like it sits alongside. It's, it's one of these mindsets, regardless of what sort of process and method you follow, you want to be this person. I love what you said around regardless of what process you follow, because I think process, sales process and sales methodology are often confused and intertangled. Like to me, process, to your point, are the steps that you take in pursuit of winning a deal. When I think about methodology, I think about what is your mindset that you bring to that deal? What do you believe you need to do in order to move from one stage of the sales process to the next? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, the um, methodologies or approaches we pair really well with is Medic, right? Or MedPick or whatever we want to call it. Like, right. it's not an either or. And I think this was a big misstep on Challenger's part in the beginning is we tried to come in and just say, like, everything's outdated. And if you're using this, you're wrong. And I think that was a big miss, right? I, mm-hmm. I think Challenger is really about arming someone like me who was a relationship builder to rewire their brain to say, you don't have to be this person's best friend. They're not going to buy from you because you took them out to lunch or you were like super nice to them on the call. They're going to buy from you because they think you have insight that helps their business more so than your mm-hmm. other two competitors and you brought it to life. Right. So I, I, right. I'm kind of in that camp that it, it doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, the other thing that sort of triggered a thought when you were, were talking to before about is, you know, like I think it's twenty summer of 2020 or whatever, Gartner you know, comes out with those research. Oh my God, buyers no longer want to talk to sellers, right? And it's like, I'm like holding my head. It's like, oh, come on. It's, (laughs) first of all, buyers never want to talk to sellers, but if you can bring the value, they need to talk to you, right? They need the perspective, they need the questions, they need the challenges, and self-aware organizations know that. And to me, that's really, you know, challenger fits right in there. It's like, yeah, this is the buyers need to talk to you if you can bring this to the table. Uh, I'll just add one thing to that comment though, Andy. Sure. The Gartner research that came out about people not wanting to talk to reps in the last few months, they came out with a new piece of data, which showed that people that don't involve reps are 29% more remorseful about their purchase decision. (laughs) So, 
I could have not want to talk to him that beforehand. Right? Yeah. Sorry, well, Jen. I mean, I... Well, no, but I think it's it's a great point though. Is I think that that this idea of why you're interacting with sellers is, and I think you know Matt Dixon is going to talk about in his new book about this idea of risk. Right? Mm -hmm. Is Oh, the new generation of buyers, they don't want to talk to the salespeople. It's like, yeah, until they make a decision without talking to a salesperson, it goes south. And the boss says, hey, did you talk to the seller about that? Oh, no, we just, you know, we just did this all on our own. Yeah, my, my boys don't want to listen to me either. And that doesn't always work out well for them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's it's so true. It's the same issue I take with people saying like cold calling is dead and emails are dead and social is dead. It's like, you know what's dead is bad stuff, like bad tactics, bad salesmanship, bad emails, bad cold calls will never be resurrected. Like sell, buyers have the option now to ignore that stuff, but I'm with you. Like there is an absolute need, probably more today than ever before because the decision like the weight of those decisions, the potential impact, the risk of those decisions is greater. But it means right. that we have to show up differently. Like I don't, a buyer doesn't need me to call them and say, here's what Challenger's training looks like. They, they have eyes. They can Google it. It's all information mm -hmm. that's out there. They need to make sense of like, who is going to have a hard time adopting this? Like, where is this thing going to go off the rails? What am I not seeing on your website? Because you're not going to put that out there. That's the conversation I think buyers are really eager to have. And they just need sellers who can deliver. Yeah. Yeah, I read a fascinating paper, I don't know, last year sometime, been written a couple decades ago about this idea of strong ties, weak ties. Mm -hmm. And and what it says is that, I forget the sociologist's name, Mark Gronvutter or something like that, it was saying, when within an organization, what happens is basically everybody starts to know the same information. And he called it, they all know redundant information. So when they're out looking to make a purchase decision or make an investment in something, the self-aware organization knows that we need people with weak ties, with whom we have weak ties, to come in and ask us the questions we don't know to ask ourselves or to give us the information we don't know to, to seek out. And yet, yeah, those are the salespeople, right? Yes. Yeah. I will say, like, we had a new CEO come in a couple years ago, Andy Harris, and she's phenomenal. I'm a huge Andy fan. Mm -hmm. And I will say it was probably one of my first exposures because I've been with some flavor of this organization for the last 18 years of having an outsider come in and just questioning everything. And it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It is so uncomfortable. But change is uncomfortable, right? And that's ultimately what customers are seeking. And so I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me is even though it's uncomfortable in the moment, it's necessary. We're better for it. We need someone who is willing to come in and to your point, challenge the conventional wisdom or at least ask questions about it. It doesn't always have to be in your face, aggressive, you're wrong, but be curious. Mm -hmm. And why does one plus one equal three mm -hmm. in this company? Exactly. Yeah. And one thing I think about quite a bit in, in challenger, I think it's also thinking about or characterizing diversity. It's really important to have diversity of thought, mm -hmm. right? If I just have a bunch of people that are thinking the exact same way that I'm thinking, I'm not really gaining the value of that interaction, right? So you think about a company, you build diversity so that you don't have a bunch of people shaking their heads at you all the time. You bring different viewpoints, you bring different populations, you bring different types of people. That's how we grow and that's mm -hmm. actually how we de-risk. And so Challenger is really about offering a different perspective. You're bringing in an expert who hopefully could shed light on a problem in a different way than you have thought about it or the rest of your team has thought about it. 
Yeah. No. Exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Exactly. So. Singer yeah. choking on me. I think you made the you, mean, you made the joke, Howard. But like to call Andy and say like, oh, now I get how Andy's showing up internally. That is what we hear from clients. They're like, I know who my challengers are. We roll out a new tool. We roll out a new process. They're the first to throw their hands up, and they don't complain. They ask that question that we're like, oh, I wish you hadn't asked that in front of other people because we haven't thought of things that way. And that is how, I mean, but that makes us better, right? It's uncomfortable, but we are better for having them say it instead of a customer say it by the time we bring it to market. Well, I would say I'm this way because I'm a product of the 60s, right? And, you know, had a sign on my, I think my brother had on his walls, question everything, right? (laughs) That's just like. (laughs) Now we know. Now we know where you get Now it. we know. That's, well, so one thing I want to ask about challenges is I think it's sort of become conflated with this idea of sort of prepackaged insights, right? Is, as you, you roll your eyes as I say that, is you know, a lot of people think they're challenging because yeah, we've got these prepackaged commercial insights we provide. And sure, there could be value for some of those, but I think the challenge comes from being in the moment and listening and really understanding what the buyer is concerned about and their challenges and having some sort of insight that's contextual for them, not something you've brought along. Just, I'm gonna pause this and just listen to you say that over and over again and play it for all of my prospects because that is probably the biggest misstep I made. Before I was trained in Challenger, I had just read Challenger. I interpret it as, okay, now go take all of these insights we have as a company and go shove it down everybody's throat who will listen. Right. And what it resulted in is first calls where I was talking a lot and second calls where they never showed up. Because why would we? Why no one wants to be talked at, no one wants to be told other companies like you, we immediately get our defenses up, right? It's like, well, I'm different because. And so what I've come to appreciate is a word that you said is I think our best friend and often our our least accompanied friend is listening. Right. We have to enter into that conversation with not just a perspective about their industry, but a perspective about their company. And we have to shape that by saying, here's what we've learned with other companies that are pursuing something similar. However, I do not work at Acme Company. This is only Mm -hmm. what I've been able to identify as as an outsider. What have I missed? And I think it's so critical that we do not come across as arrogant and I'm going to tell you what you don't know. I had I remember I was reading the other day, you may have seen this, there was this post that blew up on LinkedIn where a CIO was like, if I have one more cybersecurity rep come in and try to teach me about cybersecurity risks, I'm going to lose it. And that to me is like a misapplication of Challenger, right? It's having a conversation, it's expressing curiosity, it's listening to what we don't know instead of presuming that we know everything. Yeah, learn it all versus the know-it-all. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's, I don't know, I think I told Howard the story once is, is, and I'm interested in your perspective on this because, you know, I've sat in presentations where, like, even investors, you know, were presenting to this group of CEOs saying, here's the method to hire challengers. And, and as they were thinking they were build, scale the organization purely based on identifying this type that seems sort of mythological. And I was just wondering, you know, how do you advise companies about how do you, what are you looking for in people to hire that can best adapt to the challenger? 
Yeah, this is such an interesting question. I think candidly, our organization um, is is revisiting what we advise clients to do um, and rethinking it. So one thing I will say is you will not go out and just find this mythical unicorn of like all these challengers just sitting there waiting to be hired. Mm. In fact, more often than not, People have, if you think about the five different profiles, if you scale it from zero to 100, like I might show up as 40% relationship builder, 45% challenger, and you know whatever the remaining something else. It's not like you're all or nothing, mm-hmm. which is another beef right. that people have with challenger. Right? I can be a good relationship builder and challenge. It's not mutually exclusive. But I think the number one right. thing, like let's say if I was running a sales organization, which I'm not, but if I was and I was hiring someone What I would do is I would give them an opportunity, I would give them an account, and I would say, what is it that you think, A, this company is trying to achieve to to understand can they go out and research an account on the right things? Um, Two, Mm -hmm. I would ask them, what information, beliefs, assumptions lead you to believe or lead them to believe that current state is good enough? And that's where I'm looking for. Are they looking at CEO podcast interviews? Are they, you know, watching content online? Are they they studying the? Are they a, a student of the customer? And then three, right. how would you think about reframing them through questions? Right. So what I'm what I'm mm-hmm. moving away from is someone who's great at talking at a customer and finding how can someone accumulate all this insight and this information, but conduct a two way dialogue such that they are. They are getting the customer to realize it on their own, and they are the kind of the conduit mm-hmm. of that, but they are not the one talking at them. Like, that's how I would approach it if I was running a sales organization. I like that. Howard, thoughts? Yeah, Howard, you're muted. You're muted, Howard. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we always say the best things when we're muted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know about all that. Replicate that brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that it's very in line with building trusting, valuable relationships, right? You have to listen, you have to pay attention, you have to invest the time, and you have to make sure that the relationship is two-way. If it's simply you're spraying your knowledge at someone, it, it just gets boring. It gets useless. We, we live in a society where it's all about me all the time, my selfies. What we're looking for is human connection. We're looking to build trust. We're looking to build understanding. I think at our core, we all want to be understood. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a problem with your company, with your whatever metrics or KPIs you're trying to hit, someone who's going to invest the time and energy to not only understand how that motivates you and how that impacts you, how that impacts your company. Don't tell me about everybody else in my industry. Invest in me because what I'm offering you may not actually be the right solution and that's okay too. And I tell sellers that all the time. Invest the time to figure out whether or not this is the right customer because the right customer is no longer the customer that signs the deal for one year. You've blown Mm -hmm. the one year of revenue in acquiring that customer. You need to retain them for a longer period of time, which means there has to be fit. So it goes both ways. You need to make sure that what you're offering fits them and you need to make sure where, what the kind of customer they are and their needs match your solution. So um, I think you're spot on. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. I think one of the things, like when I used to get my territory in January, I'd filter it by size of the company, number of salespeople, right? Because I was like, oh, these are the big whales. This is where I'm going to make my bank. I had no consideration whatsoever for, is there evidence that the problem that we solve exists in this company and exists in a way that executives are talking about it. So there was one healthcare company mm -hmm. I went after for three years. I never should have been calling them. Never. They shouldn't have been on my list. They had more demand than they knew what to do with. But they had a lot of sellers. It was a sexy name. And I kept talking into myself into thinking like, I'm going to win them. And now I think one of the things Challenger taught me is you've got to look at, there's so much information today. I mean, think about when we started selling <laughs> We were calling landlines and switchboards and fax machines and all that stuff. And now I can Google any company, public or private, and hear somebody from that company talking about their path to growth. And now that that mm -hmm. for me is the segment I sell, right? Like I think I have it a little bit easy because sales leaders are really present out there. I don't care what you right. sell. Somebody is having a conversation about what that company is trying to do that gives you fodder for thinking about, well, how do we fit into that? Absolutely. What I love about that, just to add it because they get super excited, you're selling to sales leaders and sales teams, right? We do the same. And rather than just looking at those big teams, look at what companies are talking about retention rates mm -hmm. of their reps, not hitting quota, constantly hiring, but see that churn. Those are more obvious than, wow, they just have a huge team of people. They need your solution. They need Challenger. That's the, that's the fit. So it's not as simple as that top line metric. Yeah, no, I agree. So we're going to pivot just a little bit because one topic I know we wanted to talk about was, and this is one actually Howard and I have, have talked about on a podcast and I think somebody else's webinar about too, is the no decision. And Ooh. I one of my favorite topics because um, <laughs> Howard's got his hands in his head, um, oh. <laughs> head in hands. Because um, I, I, I don't know about you, I, as a sales leader, I always, and a seller, I always thought that was the worst possible outcome. I would rather have lost a deal than invest a lot of time and have it come to no decision because it meant that I failed, right? There's one thing about failing, about not winning a deal. I could have maybe fought the good fought and they may, but I just flat out failed if the customer doesn't make a decision. I was curious on your thoughts on that, Jen. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite thing to talk about because I have lost oh, wow. so many winnable deals to this, right? And I'll tell you, yeah. this is where the mindset thing really jives for me, <clears throat> which is my mindset when I first started selling Challenger was I'm gonna go show everybody who takes my call how cool Challenger is and why Challenger is better. Right, that and everything mm. I said in a call was in pursuit of proving Challenger is better than what you're doing today. Now, that's my experience. If you're selling garage doors and techno associated technology, same thing, right? This is why our door is better. This is why our AI service is better. It's my least favorite word in sales now because I think it's the number one word that led to a lot of my status quo no decision deals. Because what I failed to realize is people don't always want better. Like, good in most cases, especially in markets like this, is damn good enough, right? And there's this analogy I use yeah. all the time, which is last year, I stopped going to the gym. I was never a gym rat, but I would go three times a week because I knew it was good for me. Mm -hmm. But with COVID and with work getting busy, I just stopped going. At the same time, I'm reading all of these things in my Instagram feed. I'm reading, you know, documented articles from reputable places saying, 
you'll have less anxiety, you'll sleep better. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I have anxiety, I'm not sleeping well, and I'm still not changing my behavior, right? Because not going to the gym didn't feel like it was going to cause any sort of like massive pain. I knew it wasn't what I should mm-hmm. be doing, but it was fine. And I right. use this example of like if I had gone to the doctor the next day and they said, Jen, you're going to have a heart attack if you don't go to the gym. All of a sudden, there's a cost to my behavior. And that's what actually drives me to change. It's not that going to the gym will make me feel better. It's going to the gym is going to be my recipe for not having a heart attack and having to explain to my fiance and the kids like why Jen's no longer here. And it was like, it was like I'd never thought about sales like that. I was always thinking my yeah. job is to show why I'm better. And so that was, to me, one of the most eye-opening experiences is my job as a seller is not to show why it's better. My job is to show the cost of an action. What is the cost of the status quo before I ever start going off about what I have to offer and, and what that looks like? Yeah. Well, well so- I, I, wait a minute. I'm like, If you look at Jen, she's maybe 25 years old. So the idea of a heart <laughs> attack and like not going to, what are you talking about? Like, 20, like really? You're, somebody's worried about you having a heart attack here? 40, my Come friend, on. but I'm going to totally take that compliment and ride it to the weekend. Thank you. You, you should. <laughs> yes. Um, so, sorry, I got sidetracked. You blew me up. So change management, right? Like everybody is concerned that change is hard and it's going to take a lot of effort and yeah, better is not good enough. Like I'm not going to make change because I'm going to be better. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's too much pain, not enough gain. Uh, One thing you said, Andy, which sticks with me is that failure, the idea of failure. And as you know, we celebrate failure, right? I am okay with no decision. If you can list what you did wrong, where your failure was that led to that no decision, learn. I want you to have a bunch of no decisions, but you better have the reason that came up with no decision. So now let's get through it. Let's get through all the no decisions. If you can't learn from one of your other managers or leaders or one of your coworkers, fine, but do it once. Lose because of no no decision because of X once and move on. Yeah, I think... Nelson Mandela said, I either fail or I learn. Yeah. I I just, I get like, I get frustrated by how many actual status quo decisions are labeled as price or product, right? It's like, because to say no decision, to your point early, Andy, is like, I failed. And I think when we go in our CRM and we see our closed loss reasons, it's like you hear the customer say, you know, call me back in six months and we'll budget this for next year. And all of a sudden it's price or it's budget. To me, it's not really that, right? It was, we had an inability and I lost these deals. I had an inability to show urgency now. And so I allowed the customer to kick it out and be okay with status quo. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. I think a lot of people misinterpret the whole idea of status quo, which is they were reluctant to make a change. No, we didn't give them a reason to change to your point. Right. And that's, that's the, that's where it really starts, right? It's not that, oh, we're risk averse. Yeah, there's risk with every decision, but they were entered the process to want to make a decision. They were involved in it. We just didn't give them a reason to make a change. We and whoever else was involved in this. And yeah, that was a failure. And yeah, you know, one benchmark, you know, I oftentimes coach sellers on is, 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 yeah, has the buyer done their internal business justification? on the acquisition. If they haven't done that, 
you're headed for a no decision. And until you can help them get to that point of doing that, then they're never gonna make a decision. And you tell sellers that and it's like, oh, and because they're just not conscious of it, right? We're in our process. We go through our process. We got these stages and we march through these stages. <laughs> they're gonna make a decision. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's <laughs> not the way world, world works. Buyers <laughs> not going through stages. Yeah, <laughs> FYI. Be cool if they yeah. did. Sales would be a lot easier. No, I know. And yeah. even when I think about how I used to show up and try to help with that very thing, I would go in and I would talk about here's the ROI of changing. It's 15 times ROI. Guess who else is saying that? Every other mm -hmm. vendor competing for that dollar. It means almost mm -hmm. nothing. And I'm not saying there's not a time and place for ROI, but compelling a business to exit status quo is incredibly difficult. And just like the doctor example, they need to feel that the risk of staying the same is actually far greater than the risk of change. Because one of the exercises I'll do with, with sales teams is I'll say, list out all the reasons, like all the pains of change associated with buying what you do. Like, and mm -hmm. sellers hate doing it because we're wired to think about the upside of change. But when we really list that out, every single time I do it, the list is like this long. I mean, you were, were on a podcast, but it's huge, right? <laughs> and you, you start to develop empathy for buyers because you realize, man, these are people that are putting themselves in the line of fire. They are stirring the mm -hmm. pot. And, mm -hmm. and now I understand why there's so much hesitation. And now I appreciate and respect the job of a seller which is to really help them with that. It's to give them the thing that's going to make them feel like they're not risking their political capital by going in and asking for money for this thing. So that was another big misstep I made a lot. Yeah, I think that's common, right? We think, oh, we've done the ROI. That's enough. That's why I started with the business case is specific to your product. And so it's not the business case for making the change per se. It's for your particular solution. Mm -hmm. If they haven't done that, yeah, it's not going to happen. And it's yeah. such a simple thing to sort of keep your eyes open for as a seller because you think, oh, they must be doing that. And it's like, yeah. uh, no, <laughs> they, they're not necessarily <laughs> doing it. Yeah, if buyers operate like we think they do in their it. head, that would be really cool. Like, oh, they must be doing all these things right. It's like, man, are we disappointed. Yeah. Sorry, Howard, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was I, I was going to take it one step further. You talked about losing your political capital. I think in this market – People can lose their job by buying the wrong software or purchase, making the wrong purchase decisions. So, you know, again, that's why it's so important to really understand what you're solving for and, and what that gap is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think something I mentioned before is trying to de-risk decisions to the extent that you can. Yeah. So uh, one thing you've, you'd written about, Jen, that I wanted to ask you about was the challenger loop. And uh, I like that that concept. So tell people about the challenger loop because you said you something you'd written. I'd read that you're saying you were you've been skeptical of it at first, but skeptical is a nice way of putting it. I literally <laughs> threw my hand up in the room and was like, "This is just about the stupidest product idea I ever heard." Like I was the <laughs> pro status quo person in the room, um, but this is why right. I enjoy working here is because I was checked pretty quickly. So basically, um, one of the things that I think we all suffer through as sellers is we often don't know why we're winning or we're losing until we do mm -hmm. a post-deal like win-loss survey, right? And how many times have we been surprised by things that we read in those, if we even do it at all? And so win-loss right. surveys are not a new concept. Some companies DIY it. There's companies out there that will do it. But part mm -hmm. of the problem is it's like it's a little bit too late, Right? So if I'm a seller and let's say I finally get that FaceTime with the buying group, 
right? And I'm having a conversation with them on the need to change. I hang up that call, and if I'm optimistic, I probably think, man, that went great, and they're probably going to move forward because I didn't hear anybody say no. If I'm pessimistic, I'm sitting there second-guessing everything I said and did, and then I'm thinking about what follow-up note do I write so that I can say all the things I should have said and didn't, right? And we, I think sometimes the sellers get in our own way and get in our own heads a little bit. And so the idea Mm -hmm. of Challenger Loop is instead of waiting till you win or lose the deal, use it in flight right? Make it very low effort for the customer. Shoot out a link that goes to the people that were on that call. If it's one person, great. If it's multiple person, even better. And ask them a question about the sales experience they received. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what I why I was so skeptical is I thought, who on earth is going to want to fill out a survey? Like we as humans hate filling out surveys. I hate them. But then I realized, and this is where they checked me, which I appreciate, which is like, there's a lot at stake for that buyer. There are people, Mm -hmm. I bet, who have wanted to buy Challenger, but I failed to deliver the sales experience they want. There were probably people who said, she ran me through a slide deck, and I wasn't looking for Mm -hmm. a slide deck. I wanted a conversation. And because I didn't open that door, right, they may have gone and explored to other people. Now, if I, at that time, had sent them a survey asking about the quality of the sales experience, and they could say, Jen's nice, but all she did was just run Challenger's research through me. Like, I wanted a conversation she didn't deliver. Now me, my manager, get those results, and I can game plan, what do I do to save this? And the thing Mm -hmm. that really got me with it is, like, I cringe at how many deals I think I probably could have had a different outcome on had I been able to right. have that type of insight from the customer instead of my own perception around how I thought it went. So that's kind of challenger loop. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this idea. I mean, I call it a, an NPS for sellers and yeah. net promoter score. And yeah, I mean, I, I worked for a manager early in my career that we did this sort of scorecard for every interaction, every call we had with people. And it was hugely valuable, right? Because you you're staying on top of what they're thinking about that experience in real time. Big the time. one thing I, I would add. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The one thing I would add is I think the goal should also be to align the rep to that survey result so that they don't have to have a one hour discussion with the prospect and not check in. I think we can, I think we can learn to check in periodically and ask people, are you getting what you want out of this conversation? I think people are somewhat afraid to do that, but I think checking in, you're having, you're investing a lot of time, like do periodic check-ins. Is this going the direction you want? Are we following the agenda? Are we on course? Are you getting the value? And I like the idea of the loop. My goal is to integrate the loop into the sales process so that they get comfortable asking for that feedback as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if, I don't know how many questions you have in the loop, but I mean, if you, you can ask two questions probably and get a lot of what you need and make it really low. How many questions are there in the loop? Yeah. So it depends. There's a, there's like a status quo yeah. where you think your deal is at risk for status quo. You're going to keep those shorter, right? Because you haven't really earned the right yeah. to ask more questions. So that's a two question survey. Right. The actual post win loss, you get more of a right to ask a few more questions. Sure. So I think it's also just dependent right. on the situation or I'm a big believer and it should be going out. Like if it, if it were my way, every single first sales interaction would get a loop survey because I think you learn yeah. so much 
from that. And, and imagine you're a manager, right? You're looking at a dashboard and you can see your sellers plotted. You can see the different mm-hmm. um, feedback points. And then you can see yep. as a manager, man, I got to coach my team over here. I'm thinking it's a negotiation problem. It's actually, we don't sound any different to our competitors. And so that's why we have to compete on price. And that's why we have to discount. Like to me, when I have played the manager role is like a co- on a coverage basis, the hardest thing about it is like, how do I add value to a team of five, six, seven, eight people that I can't sit on every call? Um, so I also think like in partnership with a tool like a gong or, you know, chorus or whatever the case may be, uh, it, it just is arming <laughs> your managers to be more effective. She means revenue.io. We can yeah. edit that. I'm, I'm sorry. I knew I was going to walk into that. I knew she did. It's like Jen just cursed for through 30 seconds. We're going to beep it out. Did I say Jen looked like she was 77 years old on this conversation or 25? Yeah. We can edit that in too, Howard. So, um, (laughs) all right. Well, let's, let's, let's leave it at that. I think that was, uh, a good way to go, but I think this is I, the one thing I just add maybe to this point is is because I think this plays into how you hire people as well, which is yeah, I have conversations with sales leaders on this show and other places all the time, and, and they're talking about hiring. And I said, so let me ask you: Have you ever asked your customers what they need from your sellers? Mm. Right? No, we're gonna go hire an extrovert, a hunter, da da da. It's like, okay, does your buyer need you to be a hunter? You know, does your buyer need an extrovert? What does your buyer need? And, I love that. And until you go, idea. yeah, until you go ask them, I mean, they're hiring us to do a job, right? I mean, I, I'm a big believer in the jobs to be done theory. Yes. Our buyers are basically hiring us to help them make a decision for investment of some sort. So what are the, what are the job requirements, <laughs> right? If they're hiring us to do the job, what are the job requirements? I got an idea for your product there, Jen. So you have a loop. No, you're doing you're doing your win-loss survey at the end. They lost the deal. What did you need from that sales rep? You collect that data across industry and you can start figuring out what people need to hire. I mean, it's I think it's it's great. Yeah, no, it's it's a simple step and you know, easy enough to do. Just to ask. So. I think, did you post about that today? I feel like I read it and I liked it. And I was like, this is like, why? Well, it's, so, it's one of those things where it's like, why don't we do it this way? Wait, she's chief only- evangelist. You can make that happen. <laughs> but I think honestly, that's where I go back to like the original research with Challenger actually wasn't on sellers. It was on the customer. And it was very clear. Right. We've continued to study it. And it's very clear what customers want. They want everything you just said. They want people that are going to help them think through the process. They're going to help. The, they want the people that are going to help them see around corners and pitfalls. And what are all the ways this thing goes off the rail? Like what did not pop in that survey is someone who is an expert about talking about their product features and benefits. We all know this, right? Yeah. We know right. that's not what today's customer needs. And that's why I think to go back to your initial point, Andy, when you see this data around like customers want a self-led journey and they want to just buy digitally, it's because they don't want the alternative of being thrown exactly. into someone's process. And I will say, the last thing I'll say on this is, this has been the most eye-opening thing in this evangelist role is when I go out and I talk about, not necessarily challenger, but the sales experience and kind of what great sellers are doing, 
you, it, it is astounding to me how many C-level people will come into my LinkedIn inbox and be like, I want to talk about this. I'm like, if, you know, we have a website with a lead form, right? And they're like, I don't want to be thrown into somebody's sales process. And I get yeah. it. Like nobody right. wants to show an inch of interest because they know that especially right now we're, you know, groveling all over it. And so I think about this world and hopefully in a few years, if not sooner, where all sellers are showing up like that. All sellers are not trying to push their product down their throat or forcing us to be extroverts, but like we're just really intellectually curious and interested in helping the customer solve their problem instead of just slinging what we've got to sell. But maybe that's yeah. the ideal. So my, my acronym for for me, it's been sort of the ideal candidates in most jobs I've been hiring for. It's COMPS, C-O-M-P-S, Curious Open-Minded Problem Solver. Love it. That's what I we want. I love it. Yeah. They're not the, not the know-it-all. They're the learn-it-all. They're open-minded to knowledge. They're intellectually humility or intellectual hum, intellectually humble, excuse me. Um, that's what you want. That's what buyers want. I think that's sort of based on my conversations. But we'll explore. We'll find that out. I so, love it. Jim, I think it's All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Howard, as always. Pleasure thank to have you, you here. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Jen. This was fun. Yeah. And we'll look forward to doing it again. It was my pleasure. Seriously, a big pinch me moment to be on here. Thank you both so much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Jen Allen, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Bye.